Okay. All righty. Beautiful. Welcome back, people. Got a big show today with a lot of good information to share with people. So if you have a pen and paper, you might want to have one ready for the sort of stuff we're going to cover today. First off the bat, we're going to chat a little bit about how to maximize your disposable income, which is obviously uh-huh. the income you have left over after you pay for things that you can't avoid paying for, as well as how to cut back on the expenses you're going to use or pay for that you can't avoid. So we'll start with the disposable income side. Yeah. We're going to talk about things, maybe get dad, uh, Dave, if you want to expand on these once I've listed them. So ways you can maximize the income you have that's disposable, reviewing your spending, tracking what you're spending uh, each month and seeing where you can cut back, having yeah. a better understanding of managing your money, knowing exactly how much money you're bringing in each month to work with, um, evaluating providers of subscriptions like Spotify and things like that, uh, any yeah. memberships you might be paying for and managing whether you can cut those back, reducing your energy cost and looking to save money on things like petrol when you pay for petrol. Obviously, those uh-huh. are a few of them if you want to co- uh, cover those before we cover some other things. Yeah. Look, the thing the thing with petrol, I remember, and I'm just looking it up online now to see if it's still the um, the case, yeah. but there was some stuff I read ages ago about when was the best day of the week to buy petrol, and it was like Monday or Tuesday. Like, you know, the, the worst time to buy petrol is Thursdays, and over the weekend, because a lot of people get paid Thursday. So, um, but yeah, you can use fuel apps and those sorts of things. um, And um, yeah, to to see where the best fuel is in your area. Like where we live in Newcastle, there's three or four servos that are always the cheapest. Now, I don't go there. I pay a little bit extra only because I like the people at the servo I go to and it suits me on the way home from where I'm travelling. So, um, but, yeah, you know, just, just um, yeah, if you can you know, buy your fuel at the right time, you know, look at where your direct debits are going out, Uber Eats, um, you know, trying to limit expenses when you go out, that sort of thing, energy costs, you know, which you're going to cover. So, yeah, we'll move on then. So a couple of other ones. I got a bunch. Canstar is a great financial website that you can get a lot of great resources on in regards to managing your money, learning about budgeting and all that sort of stuff. And they shared a list of ways you can cut back or reduce the cost you have to deal with when it comes to things that you can't avoid paying for. Obviously, we talked about fuel already and maybe having an understanding of what fuel what gas stations are offering cheaper fuel. That's a great way to start. One of the ones that hit me pretty close to home because of where how I live in my house, if you have a second fridge, consider ditching it. Having a second fridge, even if it's a smaller fridge than a big main fridge in your kitchen, it can add a lot of money all, all the way up to maybe $150 a year to your power bill based on CanStar yeah. estimates. If you can fit everything in one big fridge, What's the point of having a second one that's maybe a quarter full that you're just keeping on and it's just sucking power out that's charging, uh, costing you money? Another Uh is discount gift cards. Often you might see shopping centers or specific stores like Coles or Woolies offering $100 gift cards for $90. Uh, Sometimes this is around the end of financial year or leading up to Christmas that you'll see this. Obviously, that means you're getting, you'll be able to pay for $100 worth of goods at Coles for $90 just for buying a discount gift card. I love 
the odd bunch bags of vegetables that Woolworths and Coles tend to have on offer. Uh-huh. There's an IGA in my area that does it as well. You can buy yeah. veggies or fruit that are a bit odd looking. Maybe they're a bit deformed, so they're not up to exact standards of what a grocery yeah. store wants to be selling. They sell you a bag of those those goods for a lot cheaper than if you bought stuff that completely met the standards. And we're talking about like a couple of brown spots on some bananas or yeah. some weird. Or they may have the other option is just go to Aldi because all their veggies look dodgy. <laughs> Um, but um, yeah, I, me- I remember seeing a thing on telly probably about a year ago where they talked about bananas, and apparently in people's psyche, there's a there's a a size of banana people want to buy, so they don't want them too small and they don't want them too big. And um, this uh, farmer was trashing all these bananas because they were too big, which I thought was a bit odd. But anyway, there you go. Another one is obviously things like for me personally, I've got a hot water heater in my backyard that's connected to my my house that obviously heats up the hot water that I'd use in my house to wash dishes or to run the shower. If you've got, if you're taking really long hot showers in the winter, that's obviously going to cost a little bit of money over what you might be prepared to pay on your power bills because of the amount of water that your, your heater needs to get ready for you to use. Some low flow energy efficient shower heads are a good consideration there. Obviously, you need to go and get figured out how you're going to replace shower heads, cutting down shower times, which is something that some of our family members could attest to maybe reducing, Dave. Refilling hand soap and being smarter about buying, uh, instead of replacing bottles of hand soap, buy a big refill bottle to refill all your hand soap dispensers around the house. Um, avoid using a dryer. That's a great one that I've I've always avoided using a clothes dryer because it's just so costly. Um, you've got to be smart about your energy energy use if you're trying to cut costs, especially right now. On the energy side of things, this isn't an ad because it's a government service. It's not, you know, we're not breaking news here. Uh, I think it's called energymadeeasy.gov.au. You can yep. plug your latest PDF power bill into their 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 website they're going to give you a breakdown and a list of all the different energy providers that will compete with giving you a better a cheaper cost for your energy compared to who you're you're with right now uh, I did yep. that just recently and ended up switching energy providers and I'll look to save about eighty dollars a month in energy costs just from right. switching switching I'll spend about 80 bucks in the first month just for disconnection fees and connection fees but after that I'll be saving $80 a month just that's by switching about a grand a year that's good yeah yeah so switching energymadeeasy.gov.au it's a free resource provided to you by the government they don't get paid by different providers to have their their company at the top it is literally just a bare bones breakdown of this is what you pay, this is what this company will charge, and their pricing is similar or debt or different, and it explains it all yeah. to you. So that's a great way to do it as well. I guess the last one that I love, I would never on a on a podcast admit to sharing my uh, subscription services with friends and family because that is not right and you should never do that so i'm not saying you Uh should but another thing you can look into are things like bundles for your entertainment so you might want to have netflix apple music 
a good sports subscription like KO, there are companies out there, a lot of them are phone companies like Optus or Telstra that will offer you a comprehensive all-in-one package where you pay you pay X amount phone bill, you pay X amount for your electric, uh, your Wi-Fi bill, you pay an extra 10 bucks and that gives you Netflix, it gives you KO, it gives you this, it gives you that. And there's a bunch of different companies that offer that sort of service. Things like OnePass, Optus, Subhub will give you all of those sorts of um, bundles, which can obviously be a a cheaper way to cut down on all of your subscription services if that's something you think you need to do. Um, was there anything else you wanted to cover with that one, Dave, before we moved on? Um, look, the other thing is when you, like we, we talked about like the laundry, you, know, you could throw in there like dryers, dishwashers, that sort of stuff. Um, there is a... Um, if you check your electricity bill, you'll probably find there's times of the day that are cheaper than others. So you might find that after eight o'clock's cheaper or before two o'clock during the day might be cheaper. So just check that. And then you want to do that stuff during the cheaper time. So, you know, you might do your washing at night and hang it in a, on a closed area in the house and then you come back from work the next day and it's and it's done or you do it at six in the morning because you work from home and you throw it out on the line so yeah just there's plenty of ways you can save money you know, one, one of the things around tapping you know in the old days we used to get money we used to get paid in cash mm. so every time you had to pay for something you had to pay cash and it hurt because you saw cash leaving your wallet yeah now that there's tapping and a lot of stuff is set up for monthly payments it's yeah, you don't you don't have the pain so just need to keep on top of it yeah, it's a bit, we've talked about this before, the amount of money you have, doesn't matter how much you make, it's how much money you keep. And if you can invest first, invest some money and then live off the rest, you're going to be better off. Uh, we're going to chat about rent caps. Dan Andrews, who's the Premier of Victoria, everyone outside of Victoria has their opinions about Dan Andrews, but a lot of people in Melbourne love the guy, despite uh, a lot of his rhetoric and decision-making over the last couple of years. And some people, I think, probably just like him better than any other option that that state has in form of premiers. So you, can, you can't blame him there. He has announced uh, a, a few... Uh, legislative possibilities that are going to be brought into Parliament for the Victorian state, including rent caps. When when suggested about investors being concerned about this sort of legislation being enacted in Victoria by journalists at a press conference, Dan Andrews rejected it. He's talking about increasing land taxes, imposing rent controls that are being considered, and obviously some of this might force investors to sell up their properties because they don't want to be they don't want their investment being so highly controlled and regulated as is what might end up happening in Victoria. So economists fear the proposal might discourage investment, potentially removing a lot of rental properties from the market. Some investors are saying that the proposal is enough to make them consider selling. The rent limit proposals revealed are in addition to are in addition to an imposed land tax on investment properties, restrictions on evictions without approved reasons, and much more. So CoreLogic has some data that's saying that more than 36% of listings, so more than 36% of properties for sale in Melbourne last month uh, for uh, July were former rentals, which is a two-year high. Yep. At the moment, according to uh, CoreLogic, Melbourne has 16,200 homes or apartments available for lease through Airbnb, which is obviously a 
it's obviously a big part of the rental market is being used for short-term accommodation because the people that use that can often make more money than just renting it out on the long-term market. That's compared to 11,000 long-term leases available as of July 9. So more than half of available rentals slash apartments or uh, on the on the market in Melbourne, more than half are short-term accommodation options like Airbnb and stays. I wondered what your thoughts were on that stuff before I maybe reference a few things of why the rent control might actually be a good idea, Dave, if you wanted to add anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, that that thing of, of listings um, or former rentals, yeah, some of that could be due to like the proposals, but also it could be that just interest rates have got to people and they've they've decided that, you know, they've, Either they can't afford to hold the property or they figure long-term there might be better growth elsewhere. So a lot of the property experts and buyers agents, et cetera, and even real estate agents are saying to people, look, you know, now's a good time to review the properties. You, you know, if you've got a, a property or two, if, if there's a good time to review them. And if there's ones that aren't going to perform well over the coming years, maybe look to look to sell it. So, you know, if there was more list, more listings will sort of help, what's the word, dampen, price growth so you know which is which is good for people looking to get into the market with with the airbnb look it doesn't really surprise me um we've talked about clients we've got who um you know they make as much money in airbnb in four months than they'd make on the long-term rental market um they've then got access to that property the other eight months of the year if they've got a problem tenant on a you know six to twelve month lease um, you know, it could be three months to get the tenant out and then you've got to chase them for unpaid rent. Whereas if someone is a, um, a problematic Airbnb guest, you know, they're usually gone in two or three days and you can report them to Airbnb and stays and they can be blacklisted. So, yeah, no, no real surprise there. We'll, we'll see what happens with that rent control stuff. Yeah, look, it'll be interesting to see. So Cameron Murray, fan of the show, disliked by property pundits uh, everywhere but has some pretty has some pretty interesting opinions that I think are worth being shared to people. He has a bunch of tweets I just wanted to read to you guys. Cameron Murray sort of goes on to say this, right? For people arguing that zoning reform is the secret to cheap housing and high home ownership, let's think about how we historically achieve these outcomes. In the 19th century, we had rising inequality and unequal access to land, which is a normal property market process. After a turbulent first half of the 20th century, uh, obviously we had like a lot of wars, like the First World War, Second World War. In the first half of the 20th century, the heavy hand of the welfare state intervened to enable broad access to housing. In Australia, there were publicly financed private housing construction programs, land gifts to returned soldiers, rent controls that forced landlords to sell to homeowners, tightly regulated mortgage markets and a huge public housing program led home ownership to grow from 53% to 71%. These programs got the outcome we now think the market will provide. How do the people arguing that the main problem is zoning reconcile that record with their views? So I guess part of what Cameron Murray is saying is what a lot of people are trying to say right now, which is we can't look at the private market to solve affordability problems with home ownership in a country when we had our highest home ownership rates in history was when government was intervening and building some of the housing stock, which they've stopped doing over the last 30, 40 years. Um, I, yeah. I think the thing, what 
one of the things I'd mention is when government was doing that 30 or 40 years ago, there was a lot of vacant land available. Like we were out, um, I can't remember where we, we were driving around the other day looking at some some development stuff and um, with one of the real estate guys who do some work with and, um, you know, we are just sort of saying that, you know, X number of years ago, you know, all this land was vacant, now it's full of houses. So um, the, the issue, all the vacant land we've got now, well, a lot of the vacant land we've got now um, is in areas where people don't necessarily want to... Um, necessarily want to live so build upwards um, where there's already housing where they need it well for sure you know and we've talked about Adamstown which is a suburb we live in um you know there's a a, a reasonably big road and the government's getting you know, the, the, you know houses are getting torn down and three to four story you know quite nice apartment buildings are being put up in townhouse developments and that sort of stuff and you know you've got plenty of um you know vacant buildings and factories and all this sort of stuff on on train lines you know within 10 20 k's of sydney and melbourne you know you could easily rezone them to residential and and yeah encourage builders to to build the stuff or use money from the the future fund if it ever gets through the senate yeah that's fucked isn't it i'm not really following it too much but it sounds like Abbott, oh, Abbott, Jesus, it sounds like Albo wants to, I don't understand how politics works. I'm not going to lie to you. Don't yeah, so with, with that one, it was one of the, the policies the government bought, you know, at the last election was that they would put $10 billion into a fund and estimating a 5% return on that would fund 500 mil per annum, which could be used to build houses. And they're talking about 30,000 social and affordable houses over the next five years. So that that was sort of the logic behind it. But, you know, the, the Greens are saying that they need to build a lot more. Uh, the opposition, you know, they just, dis- you know, like most oppositions, they just disagree with what the government wants to do anyway, whether they, lo- whether they agree with it or not. So, yeah, that's sort of where it's stuck at the moment. Um, but, you know, the, the election was, the election was what, May 2022. So, you know, we're 14 months down the track and haven't even got a shovel into the ground yet. Last one from me before we move on to your stuff. This is a bit insider baseball, but we're going to explain it to you guys as best as we can about uh, refinancing and turnaround times. So I'm going to break down the info we've got. And if Dave can, if you can take over and explain to people how this all works, um, because yeah. I'm not really the the right person for the job. So there's a big mortgage brokerage firm called Lendy uh, based on some of their data for July. They're saying that the big four banks are taking an average of 20 days, 20 business days, which I think makes out to be four weeks, Dave, to discharge an existing mortgage when borrowers are wishing to move. So just say they want to refinance from one of the big four. So Westpac to my state bank in Tassie, which is a smaller bank, a smaller lender taking an average of 20 days to discharge it. Um, the ACCC, which is one of the regulatory uh, regulatory bodies for the banking system, says that the appropriate time recommended for a discharge uh, is 10 days to safeguard competition. So it's obviously an improvement. So last July, the, the average discharge was 25 days, which is five weeks. So David Hyman from Lendy says that banks should be allowing those borrowers who want to switch to do so as efficiently as possible and that the 20-day wait period is simply too too long and unacceptable given 
what's sort of going on in the economy uh, regarding cost of living pressures uh, and I guess people who might be under financial pressure from rising mortgage repayments. So this 20 day period is just too, is just not good enough. Uh, The Mortgage Finance Association of Australia, I think they're called the MFAA, wants the government to act on delays by implementing recommendations the ACCC made in its home loan pricing inquiry back in 2020 to force banks to get closer to the target. So Dave, do you want to just sort of explain how turnaround times work? why 20 days for a discharge of an existing mortgage is pretty shit and whether anything's going to change. Yeah, cool. So we've talked a bit about how leaving a bank is a bit like leaving a partner. So yeah. in any, unless it's unless it's um, <laughs> like agreed, unless yeah. it's agreed, like, you know, you, you've had a chat with your partner and, and, you know, they go, look, it's not working for me. And you go, yeah, look, it's not working for me. And you you know, give each other a hug and wish each other the best for the future and, you, you know, you split up your assets and move on. You know, most breakups and relationship breakdowns don't work like that. It's normally, you know, someone, someone will do something wrong or the other person's not feeling not feeling the love and, you know, people throw stuff out on the street and scream their head off and bag them out on social media. So when it, when it comes <laughs> to leaving a bank, what not, what the process normally is is, so we'll we'll get a ta- we'll get contacted by a client and see that they're on you know a, a reasonably high interest rate. Okay. And they say they want to refinance. So what we do is say, look, the the end of the let's start at the end. The end is the end of the process is that a new a new bank will contact your old bank to say, hey, we're taking over the loan. Can you discharge the mortgage? Now, that is through a mortgage discharge form that the person who has the loan fills out. What normally happens is when the bank, when the bank you're leaving gets that discharge form, they're usually straight onto the phone because they don't want to lose the customer. So, you know, it'll be, you know, oh, you know, we we if you stay, we'll offer you this incentive. Now, some people might go look, yeah, that's not a bad incentive or I've got a lot of direct debits and I've got a lot of payments coming out of and they'll be with that bank for a long time. Yeah, stuff it, I'll stay. What we we say to people, look, so that's the end of the process. And if at the end of doing a lot of work, which requires a client to get quite a bit of info, um, us as brokers um, to go through that info, for us to prepare an application for the client to confirm and sign, okay. for it to go to someone at a bank who then looks at it and says, yes, we'll take the loan on, for them to do a, a, a um, for that bank to then get evaluation of your property, and that might be a computer valuation or actually paying for a valuer to turn up at your house, then for that bank to prepare the loan and mortgage documents which come to us to review and then you as the customer sign them and then they go to the bank to settle the loan with the bank you're leaving. So there's, there's quite a lot of work involved in refinancing. It's it's not like organising a get-together on Facebook or dialing up or, or Uber Eats at halftime of the football. There's a lot more to it. What happens is when the bank you're leaving gets that form, you know, it's, it's quite, you know, the ACCC can say it should take 10 days, but... A lot of it depends on how many refine, sorry, how many mortgage discharge forms that bank has received, how many staff they've got available, all that sort of stuff. Now, some banks take 
15 business days, some take 20 business days, and you, you need to factor that in if you're refinancing. You know, if you're if you're talking to your new bank or your broker and saying, you know, I'm refinancing and I need the money by the end of next week, well, you might as well go watch a Disney movie because, you mm. know, that's the land you live in. The, the, the best thing to do, if you, you just got to be real. You know, what we'll do is we will... Um, we will always go to the bank the client's with and just say, look, client's been in contact, is looking at leaving, what can you do? So we want to get, we want to find out from the bank what they'll do to keep the customer. And if they can, if the customer stays put, that's fine. We don't earn any money from that, but it saves us a lot of time down the track because if we do all that work I've just described and then right at the end, the, the, the bank you're leaving says, oh, look, if you stay, we'll offer you this incentive and you stay. There's been a lot of time, money and energy wasted by a lot of people just because your bank, who you didn't like, you now like. So yeah. that that's the thing. So, look, if, if you're not happy with your existing bank, give them a call. Yeah, you can look online and see what sort of rates are around. So you can sort of, you know, you don't, a broker can help you do that. But if you're not happy with your bank, give them a call see whether they can um, sharpen the pencil a bit on interest rate or if not, give us a call or a, a broker a call and, um, you know, they'll be able to help you out. So there, I feel like we had a couple more you wanted to cover, Dave, starting with yeah, the RBA, I'll, I'll just, right? I'll just, yeah, I'll just be quickly. Like my biggest, my favourite subject in the world is reality. And <laughs> the, the reality of where we are now is yesterday the RBA, as predicted by me, I'm on a roll, two in a row. Nice. Um, they left interest rates on hold. Now, the reality is the reason why interest rates are so high is because we have high inflation because of a strong economy and low unemployment. Now, we have a housing shortfall. We have housing approvals are at a four-year low. In June, they're down seven. In the year of June, they're down 7.7%. Um, approvals for detached housing, so normal houses, is down nearly 14%, and for attached, so townhouses, apartments, is down nearly 11%. We have 500,000 migrants coming into the country, and we don't have enough accommodation for the people we've got. We've got a tragic social and affordable housing shortfall, and we have the RBA, who after... 14 months of putting rates up have, may have stopped. Who knows? They may need to put rates up again. Mm. So the reality is house prices, in my opinion, are going to rise. So you've got two options. You can get on the train and try and get into the market. You, The property you buy does not have to be the place you live in. It can be a rental that is rented to someone else. Now, you can be living in... Turak, Sandy Bay, Merriweather, Bondi, Byron Bay. You could be living anywhere, enjoying your lifestyle and buy a rental somewhere else. You do not need the place you buy first does not have to be the place you live in. And plenty of people have made good money doing that. So that that's the reality. We can talk about rent caps and we can talk about this other stuff, you know, all manner of stuff till the cows come home. But the reality is the property market has gone up in the last couple of months. And if interest rates stabilise and then probably start to reduce, 
start to trim back as inflation drops. Um, remember, during the pandemic, we had yeah, basically we're in recession, so the RBA dropped interest rates to 0.1. Now yeah. interest rates high, they're at 4.1. If inflation continues to trend down, rates will drop. Places will become more affordable because borrowing capacities will increase and prices will go up, mainly because we have tr such a tragic undersupply. And Damo, you mentioned the um, the housing thing. The, in June, the Feds gave $2 billion to the states to and said, look, we need you to build some houses. Now, that builds about 5,000 properties at $400,000 each. Now, not sure where you're going to build, a, buy land and build a house for 400 grand, but you know, we won't worry too much about that. There was a thing from the Union New South Wales City Futures um, area, and they estimate there's 437,000 households that have an unmet need for accommodation. Now, at $400,000 per property, that's $174.8 billion required to build those. Now, the government doesn't have the money to do that. So the government needs investors to help build the houses. So we can talk, people can talk all they like about, yeah, it's the government's job to do this, this, that, the other thing. The government is not a bottomless pit of money. The The solution's twofold. You know, we need, the government needs to pick up the ball on social and affordable housing, but it also needs to make sure that investors um, are doing their bit as well. So yeah. that's the thing is, the only other thing I was going to mention is there was some great stuff by John Fitzgerald or James Fitzgerald from Seven Steps to Wealth or I can't remember exactly what, the Bulletproof Investing guy. And he was just talking about, um, yeah, a lot of people go, oh, interest rates have gone up, so house prices have gone down. It's not necessarily the case. You know, over the last 25 years, house prices have gone down four times and they've gone up 21 times. During that time, um, interest rates have generally, you know, they've, they've fallen a couple of times and they've increased seven times. So it's there's there's no real, what's the word, correlation between interest rates going up and property prices going up or down. A lot of it's due to local factors. It's due to supply and demand, lack of listings, um, you know, government subsidies like you know changes that you know we've got one at the moment in new south wales um basically pro property that was between 650 and 800 grand um what we're seeing is it seems to have gone property at those at those price points has gone up because the stamp duty exemption for first-time buyers has gone from 650 to 800,000. so there's you know if you were a first home buyer who you know, your budget was um, 750 grand plus you know, maybe 20 grand of stamp duty. So you needed 770. Now you don't have to pay the stamp duty. So your budget's 770 and you basically will end up paying 20 grand more. Or so you have 20 more, 20 grand more available to you to spend. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot to it. But um, I I just can't see anything but property prices to keep going up because of tragic undersupply, you know, during the pandemic, the number of people per household dropped from something like, you know, three and a bit to two and a half or something, which meant we needed about an extra 180,000 houses to house the same number of people. 
Then add on to that, we've got half a million people coming in from overseas and a lot of them have cash and they're buying or they're going to rent for six months and then buy. So, yeah, I just think, you know, as we've talked about, if you can if you can get into the market, yeah, it's probably not a bad time. Um, if you're renting, rents are probably only headed upwards. You know, there might be rent caps and, and that sort of thing, but generally over the course of time, rents are only headed up because um, of supply and demand. So, you know, if you can lock in a, in a longer-term lease, it might be worth um, seeing if you can do that. Easy. Well, if uh, if people find all that sort of stuff interesting and want to learn more, there's a couple of ways you can get in touch with us. You can go to moneysaverhomeloans.com.au and you can find out ways to contact us there. There's a contact form on that website. You can go to Facebook, type in Money Saver Home Loans. You'll find our page post a little bit of content on there as well as any sponsorship stuff we've we're involved with. Um, yeah, we do podcasts twice a week. Share it to people if you think that it, it might be informative for them. Maybe they don't really understand how, how to track your money the way that maybe they need to to be a little richer next week than this week. Um, these sorts of episodes are hopefully a help to people who are trying to understand ways to better budget or manage their money. Hopefully that helps a little bit with you guys uh, and we'll, we'll chat to you next week.